I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be once again joined by Joe Shepherd, the founder of the United Rural Democrats. Welcome back to the podcast, Joe. Thanks, Will. My pleasure to be here. It's great to have you back on. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is, um, for those who didn't listen to the previous episode or haven't heard um, of the United Rural Democrats before, can you just give a, a kind of overview of what the um, organisation does and, and how you came to start it? Absolutely. So um, we're an organization based in the United States of America that works to help Democrats. Uh, the United States is a vast country with a massive urban-rural divide where the cities vote one way and the countryside votes another way. <clears throat> and that's a problem given how our elections have been so contentious over the last few years. So we really need to cool that divide. And that starts by providing for people in rural areas and just simply reaching out. So over the last two years, I've traveled about 175,000 miles to every state in the union, except California, Alaska, and Hawaii, reaching out to probably 15 or 20,000 voters. And I'm not stopping anytime soon. Actually, just after this recording, I'll be leaving for Pennsylvania. So obviously a very, uh, a very busy schedule. And as um, as part of that, I know that you um, endorse particular candidates and and, and help uh, particular uh, candidates in in elections. What kind of process do you go through in uh, assessing whether a candidate is someone that you want to support, you want to help? Are, are there any particular criteria that have to be met? That kind of thing. Sure. So I think there's really two things. If we're talking about local candidates or you know state level candidates, it's you know, do you understand your communities and what they need and will you be a good advocate for them? When it comes to federal candidates or statewide candidates, it's often, are you going to be able to advocate for all of the people of your community? And I think that there are a lot of people out there who are not rural Americans themselves that do a fantastic job advocating for everybody in their state in the U.S. Senate, regardless of whether you voted for them or whether you live, you know, in the metro areas. So I think that's kind of what I look for. And um, a lot of the times we find great candidates who are willing to do just those things. And I think that given the lack of resources most Democrats have in rural areas, we can't really be too choosy when it comes to ideology. It's more about, are you willing to stand for the people and do good things, or are you not? And that's kind of how we choose candidates. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and of course, um, a lot of um, activity for the organisation will have been had over the uh, past few months with the midterm elections. Uh, oh, could, yes. could, you, could you just give us a, a kind of a, an overview of what you've been doing during the, uh, the midterm elections and how successful you feel that they have been for rural Democrats? Of course. So um, I personally ran a state legislative campaign in the state of Illinois, and uh, we won by a nice margin. But I think nationally, this election was very good for Democrats, although in many areas it was less good for rural Democrats. Um, I think that because of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, which protected a woman's right to an abortion at a federal level, I think that a lot of voters voted Democrat as an act of backlash in primarily suburban and urban areas. However, we did see in some states, rural areas moving continually to the right. 
Um, but in some states, such as Pennsylvania, where I'm going this weekend, we saw a significant movement back towards the Democrats in rural states with great candidates like John Fetterman and Josh Shapiro. So I think that the midterms were very good, considering the fact that the Democrats hold the White House. So I think that's my assessment. It was about as good as we could have asked for. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And do you feel in uh, these elections that the conspiracy theories around the last presidential election, the 2020 election, do you feel that they have been abated in any degree or do you feel that they have grown somewhat and perhaps more people are buying into them? What's your sense of how widespread those beliefs are? Well, actually, the candidate we ran against in my election was inspired to run for office because of those conspiracy theories. And that's all he would talk about at the hustings. So, you know, I think my read on it is that the people who believe those conspiracies, first of all, those conspiracies are flat out false and nonsense. But I think the people who believe them, believe them. And the rest of us don't. I think the people who believe them are very loud at their beliefs. But I wouldn't say that they are a majority in rural areas or even close to 30%. I think that, you know, there's an, a there's a saying that, you know, the loudest people uh, often seem like they have the most numbers. But I think really that's just what we have with these conspiracy people. They're very loud, but I don't really see them in most scenarios as getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, how how much do you think that continual psychodrama around um, the former president, Donald Trump, and the 2020 election and, and the fact that there seems to be so much time spent by Republicans discussing the election conspiracy theories have put voters off from supporting the Republicans. Do you think that that's helped the Democrats in that voters have seen what the a lot of Republicans are saying and think, well, this is just madness. At least the, the Democrats seem to be doing something and seem to be making a, a, a positive and, and policy led argument going into election. Absolutely. Um, personally, many of my family members have been Republicans since the time of Abraham Lincoln. And this Thanksgiving, I found out that they voted Democrat for the first time in many of their lives. So I think that clearly the Republican Party has a lot of internal issues and those internal issues are affecting their voter base. So I think that's kind of my answer for you there. Mm-hmm. Um, it did unquestionably help the Democrats this year. Um, but I think the real big thing was the Supreme Court's decision to take away a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. And given that um, the result of the midterms obviously um, has allowed the Democrats to retain the Senate but lose the House of Representatives, what challenges do you think that's then going to give the Democrats for passing legislation? Do you think that they'll be able to navigate that? Because it is a relatively small majority that Republicans have in the House of Representatives, isn't it, compared to what a lot of them um, suggested that they might get? Oh, yes. Um, It appears to be the smallest majority for any congressional party in decades, to my understanding. So given the fractured nature of the Republican Party, I mean, right now they're deciding very loudly who gets to lead them in the next Congress. So I don't know what's going to happen in the House. I genuinely do not. I think it's quite possible that in January we won't have a speaker and they'll have to make some sort of compromise candidate to be the leader of the House. In the Senate, I think that Democrats retaining the Senate is actually very good for legislation because the Senate has the power to um, approve appointments for, you know, cabinet posts Mm -hmm. or judiciary positions. 
I read this morning that um, Joe Biden has confirmed more judges in his two years at this point than Donald Trump has. And one of Donald Trump's big things was getting those conservative judges on the bench. And already, I think it was 84 or 85 at this point, and Joe Biden has 89. So I think the Democrats retaining the Senate and um, the Judiciary Committee is actually led by my home state, Senator Dick Durbin. We're going to keep chugging those liberal justices on the court. So I think us holding the Senate is an excellent thing. Mm-hmm. And um, in regards to the Senate, of course, uh, the day that we're recording the um, Georgia runoff is entering its final stages. I mean, what what have your thoughts been on the um, runoff election, and particularly the way that the uh, Republicans and their candidate Herschel Walker have handled it? I mean, it's uh, been making headlines around the world. Some of his uh, not not just his his statements, but the things that he's been getting up to in his um, personal life as well. Do you think that that's going to really harm the Republicans going forward that they had Herschel Walker as a, a, a candidate and he has failed so spectacularly? Oh, undoubtedly. I think that the Republicans actively cost themselves taking back the Senate because of the candidates they ran. It's not just Herschel Walker. It's also Blake Masters in Arizona, who is a very strange individual. You have Dr. Oz, the puppy killer, who doesn't even live in Pennsylvania, running in Pennsylvania. Uh, You have Herschel Walker, who has enough issues. We can make a whole podcast about it. You know, I think that those are three opportunities right there where we had vulnerable Democrats run good campaigns against Republicans who really didn't know what they were doing. And I think that Herschel Walker, I'd be very surprised if he loses. The polls close in about one hour from when we're recording this. Um, I'd be very surprised if he wins. And I think that it shows that Just because Donald Trump can get you through a Republican primary does not mean that he can get you through a general election. I think that's the ultimate takeaway from from all of this. You know, Donald Trump is still the master of the Republican Party for now, but it doesn't mean that the American people agree with him. Mm -hmm. Do you you think that these losses and especially if um, Raphael Warnock, as he seems to be projected, will retain the seat and Herschel Walker will um, lose. Do you think that this is going to further damage uh, Donald Trump's attempt to become the nominee going into 2024? Because in comparison to, say, Ron DeSantis, who um, managed to win quite uh, by quite a large margin for his re-election in Florida, do, do you think that these losses will make some Republicans reconsider whether they should support Trump or do you think that they're too far down the the rabbit hole to oh absolutely those machinations are already occurring people are already reconsidering Trump you have to consider the fact that a lot of the people who make up sort of the the political class of the Republican Party the establishment Mm -hmm. they've never been comfortable with him a lot of them six years ago when he was nominated for president they grit their teeth and stood by him and a lot of them are simply just at least in the political class, so terrified of their own base that they'll just go along with it. But I think that now that Donald Trump has credibly cost them the United States Senate and also cost them majorities, larger majorities, at least in the House, I think there's an argument to be made that he, from an establishment utilitarian perspective, has he's run his course. You know, he cost us seats. Why follow him anymore? So I think that over the next year, especially the next few months, You're going to see a lot more Republican knives coming for Donald Trump, but I still think he's going to run because he's Donald Trump. Who's going to stop him? You know, 
Um, whether he's successful, time will tell. But I think he's going to have a much harder road moving forward. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And uh, in regards to the next presidential election, um, the first Democratic primary is scheduled to happen in South Carolina. Um, what do you think that that says about Joe Biden's intentions to run for a second term? Do you think that that seems to confirm those intentions? And, and what do you think that the shift in the in the primary schedule will have in terms of an overall effect on the the tone of the race and the eventual result of it? Sure thing. So I think that, um, you know, I I really personally want President Biden to run for a second term. I think he's the best man for the job right now. Uh, I think with regard to the primary reshuffle, um, I do agree that it was Iowa's time to change, but I'm not sure South Carolina was necessarily the best pick. Um, I think personally, a state like Georgia would have been much more representative of the population than, say, South Carolina. But I understand that Congressman James Clyburn was instrumental in providing Joe Biden his primary victory there in 2020. So I understand that, you know, it's sort of paying back a little bit. I think that the way that they've structured the primaries, saying that we're going to revisit this every few years, I think it makes it a lot easier to sort of handpick successors in the future because um, should Joe Biden choose to retire instead of stand at the next election, it'll be much easier because of his closeness with Clyburn and the South Carolina Democratic Party for him to give whoever he wants an early lead uh, in a presidential race. So I think that the fact that they are choosing to sort of get the party to pick new primaries each cycle, I think will make it a little harder for kind of breakout candidates to happen like Barack Obama in 2008, but time will tell. Um, You know, South Carolina has not uh, given its electors to a Democratic candidate since Jimmy Carter in 1976. So I'm not sure that it's the best candidate to go first, but I completely understand that, you know, it's time to give more diverse voices, kind of the first seat at the table as well. So I see both sides to it. Mm-hmm, absolutely, absolutely. Um, in terms of just turning to what will uh, remain of um, uh, the, the few years before the next presidential election, what kind of uh, policies do you think that the the Democrats should focus on in, in the next couple of years before the presidential election? W- where do you think would be the main uh places that they could focus on that would make uh voters think yes we want to re-elect president biden or we want to support the democrats uh at least where do you think the the biggest potential policy wins could could be in terms of possible legislation so i see sort of two positions on that because i think that president biden has had truly an extraordinary uh couple years given the the narrow house and the narrow senate Uh, He's done quite a bit legislatively with regard to his agenda. So I think that in the next few years, uh, I think the real legislative hopes are, one, to try and codify Roe versus Wade. I don't think this will happen with this Congress, but it might with the next, God willing. Um, I think also one thing that always helps a sitting president, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, is economic stewardship. So I think that if our Congress continues to do a decent job managing inflation and other things, I think that that's kind of the roadmap for now. Because most of the time with any president, Republican or Democrat, it's generally understood that you get your big stuff done in the first two years, 
because that's normally when you have the largest mandate to do things. So I think now it's just focusing on the results. Our infrastructure bill was massive. It's going to be rebuilding massive parts of this country that have not seen revamps in generations. It's going to be providing a lot of jobs all over the country in every state. And I think that just kind of running on that and running on the the fact that we are doing good work for the American people is really what the next Congress should focus on. Just stay the course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, In terms of America's reputation around the world, obviously um, Donald Trump had not perhaps the most positive impact for America on the world stage. How do you think uh, President Biden has handled world events and has represented America on the world stage. Do you think that he's helped restore confidence for the rest of the world in the US? I'd say yes. Um, I know uh, President Macron of France was just here this weekend. And um, at the first G7 summit in 2021, President Biden told everyone that America's back and Macron said for how long. I think that, honestly, uh, Joe Biden is probably the best foreign policy candidate we could have, Republican or Democrat right now, because he has 50 years of experience in government and chaired the Foreign Relations Committee in the U.S. Senate for many years. Um, He knows literally half the world when it comes to leaders, and I think that'll help with restoring trust because many of the people already knew who he was and who was a known quantity before entering the Oval Office. I mean, I believe he was present at Justin Trudeau's christening if you want to understand how long he's been in American politics. Um, don't quote me on that one, because I'm not entirely sure. But I think it, there's there's some story to that effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously demonstrating a, a, a great um, length of service as a, as a uh, public representative. In terms of how um, the American people uh, view British politics, obviously this year has been um, very hectic for British politics. We've had three prime ministers um in one year i mean what's your sense of what people in america have thought of what's happened in britain politically and the seeming sense of instability Uh, do do you think that that's perhaps made some americans question the premise of the of the uh, special relationship as is often referred to between britain and the u.s i mean how do you think people in america have have just thought of and, and and reacted to the the chaos that's been occurring in, in British politics. Of course. Well, first I'd say, um, frankly, that I think most Americans don't really think beyond our own borders. Um, only about, I believe it's about 40% of Americans even have a passport. Um, but I would say that for those that are paying attention to British politics, it has been a very interesting, um, interesting time to watch. I remember um, I was actually in the United Kingdom during the indicative votes on Brexit in March of 2019. I was in London when everyone was marching around. And I think that, you know, the British people made their decision with Brexit. Um, That's their decision, not mine as an American. But I do think that what we're seeing now economically in the United Kingdom is the natural contractions that one would see uh, from leaving an economic bloc as the United Kingdom did. And it's obviously made worse by Putin's war in Ukraine. Um, I was just in Portugal a couple weeks ago. And one of the things I noticed was 
um, in the immigration line. They have in Europe two sets of lines for immigration and passports. One is for European Union citizens and Swiss people, and that's always way faster. And there's another line for everybody else. And when I was sitting in the queue in Lisbon, I just heard a lot of people from the UK, presumably by the accents, complaining about how their passports are useless these days. So I think that um, that's kind of the read I would get from an American perspective. I don't think the special relationship has been damaged because every country in the world goes through periods of turbulence. And I think the United Kingdom is just going through one such period. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, in in terms of uh, the war in Ukraine and um, Putin's uh, continued uh, seemingly at, at times utterly um, unreadable behavior and the potential threats of um, uh, nuclear uh, retaliation at some point dependent on um, certain circumstances and dependent on um, the various threats that President Putin makes or those officials on on his behalf make. How do you feel about the war? How concerned are you about potential further American involvement or do you feel that the support that the Americans have given to the Ukrainians is really turning the tide and and ensuring that or at least going on the road towards a Ukrainian victory absolutely 80 years ago Franklin Roosevelt said that America must be an arsenal for democracy and I think we're doing that today um the Ukrainians have been unfairly attacked by a rogue regime And I think that American assistance and European assistance is playing a critical role. I don't really see us doing much more unless Putin crosses any further red lines, but that is to be seen. Um, I think Putin Putin is obviously an unpredictable character, but I think the real critical point from my perspective is that the Russian economy has been in a tumble for the last 10 to 12 years at this point. And I think that his power, his regime, is built on that economic stability. And if he doesn't have that anymore, you know, the invasion of Crimea in 2014 was very closely linked with a decline in oil prices that would have obviously greatly damaged the Russian economy and the standard of living of Russian people. So I think that Putin Putin understands that he's kind of on borrowed time and that his strength is the Russian economy's strength. And I think that uh, my read of it is that this illegal invasion of Ukraine um, is just another distraction from the declining quality of life in Russia. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, how much longer do you think that President Putin potentially has uh, being the the leader of Russia? Obviously, it's very difficult to um, determine in, in situations when um, a, a country is ruled by someone who is obviously acting as a, a dictator as to how long they might um remain but i mean do you think we're going to eventually see a point where the pressures of the war and the as you mentioned the falling um standard of living in russia eventually force some kind of change of regime and and, and eventually see president putin exit the the world stage i mean everything has its end point i'm not really comfortable commenting on this one just because i'm not really sure when you look up things in the west especially in the united states about vladimir putin the first things you'll see online are often 
you know, not very well sourced, even slightly conspiratorial things about his health or other things. I don't know, and I'm not going to claim I know. But um, based on the track record of how history generally plays out with things like this, I don't see this ending well for Mr. Putin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, we're coming towards the end uh, of the podcast. It's been great to have you on again, Joe. And I have one absolutely. final uh, question for you. Uh, we're coming up to Christmas, to the Christmas season. Uh, Christmas is always often associated with giving gifts and receiving gifts. So my final question to you is this. If you had to pick Christmas presents for President Biden and Donald Trump, what Christmas gifts would you pick for both of them? That's a really good question. Okay. So what what can you get a man who has everything? So um, I guess with President Biden, I don't know. I'd probably go up to Wisconsin and get him a nice tub of Wisconsin ice cream. Um, A fun fact, I actually got to meet President Biden last year when he was coming to Wisconsin to pitch the infrastructure program. And um, they actually shut down the entire city of La Crosse, Wisconsin, so his helicopter could go get ice cream with the governor of Wisconsin. So I think I'd get him some ice cream for the White House. Um, And then President Trump, I would say an empty stocking, but that's cruel. (laughs) I think think I'd give him a nice microphone courtesy of the FBI and DOJ. (laughs) So I think that's that's probably what I'd get him. Um, I don't even know what I mean. Can I give him, you know, the ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future? I don't yeah, know. I, I, no, I, th- I mean, I think yeah, either the the microphone or the um, ghosts of Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future would be entirely appropriate. <laughs> I feel like, you know, after January 6th, I'm not really sure if we can go the whole Dickensian ghosts route anymore. I think yeah. we might be past that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> that was a great question. I, I haven't thought of that one before, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, you, you gave um, a, a great response, and I think that um, either would be you know, a, a, the, the suggested gifts would be entirely appropriate for um, both. Thank you once again for coming on the um, podcast, Joe. Um, if people want to find out more about the United Rural Democrats, where should they go to find out more about? Absolutely. So uh, our website is unitedruraldemocrats.org and our Twitter is rural underscore united. I'll repeat that one more time, unitedruraldemocrats.org and you can find us on Twitter at rural underscore united. Thank you so much for having me, Will. It's always great to be back. No worries, no worries. Thanks once again for coming on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.